0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge and this is for Reading Out Loud. Tonight's author was a political scientist and economist. He taught at McGill University until his retirement in 1935. He wrote nearly 20 books on history and political economy. They are now nearly forgotten because he was to become world famous for his humorous writings. Tonight's author is the Canadian writer Stephen Leacock. I'm told that between 1915 and 1925 he was the most famous humorist writer in the world, loved by a broad reading public and many greats in the world of humor. He mentored and encouraged Robert Benchley, Groucho Marx brought him to the attention of Jack Benny when they were young vaudevillians, and Leacock became one of Benny's favorite authors and an inspiration. The only complaint among critics seems to have been, I think a bit oddly, That he confined himself to short pieces and never wrote a novel. All right, well. Let's bear in mind that some authors have written novels only because they never mastered the epigram. In his short stories and sketches he is perhaps unmatched and is still beloved. The Sunday Times commented, "'His wisdom is always humorous, and his humor is always wise.'" Tonight's story is taken from Stephen Leacock's book, Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, and is called The Marine Excursion of the Knights of Pythias. This one goes out with thanks to Roseanne. Half past six on a July morning. The Mariposa Bell is at the wharf, decked in flags, and steam up ready to start. Excursion Day. Half past six on a July morning and Lake Wissanati lying in the sun as calm as glass. The opal colors of the morning are shot from the surface of the water. Out on the lake the last thin threads of mist are clearing away like flecks of cotton wool. The long call of the loon echoes over the lake. The air is cool and fresh. There is in it all the new life of the land of the silent pine and the moving waters. Lake Wissanati in the morning sunlight. Don't talk to me of the Italian lakes, or the Tyrol, or the Swiss Alps. Take them away. Move them somewhere else. I don't want them. Excursion day, at half-past six of a summer morning, with the boat all decked in flags, and all the people in Mariposa on the wharf, and the band in peaked caps, with big cornets tied to their body, ready to play at any minute. I say— "'Don't tell me about the Carnival of Venice and the Delhi Durbar. "'Don't. I wouldn't look at them. "'I'd shut my eyes, for light and color give me every time "'an excursion out of Mariposa down the lake to the Indian's island "'out of sight in the morning mist. "'Talk of your papal Zouaves and your Buckingham Palace guard. "'I want to see the Mariposa Band in uniform "'and the Mariposa Knights of Pythias.' With their aprons and their insignia and their picnic baskets and their five cent cigars. Half past six in the morning, and all the crowd on the wharf and the boat due to leave in half an hour. Notice it, in half an hour. Already she's whistled twice, at six and at six fifteen, and at any minute now. "'Christy Johnson will step into the pilot-house "'and pull the string for the warning whistle "'that the boat will leave in half an hour. "'So keep ready. "'Don't think of running back to Smith's Hotel for the sandwiches. "'Don't be fool enough to try to go up to the Greek store "'next to Netley's and buy fruit. "'You'll be left behind for sure if you do. "'Never mind the sandwiches and the fruit. "'Anyway, here comes Mr. Smith himself "'with a huge basket of provender that would feed a factory.' there must be sandwiches in that. I think I hear them clinking. And behind Mr. Smith is the German waiter from the Calf with another basket, indisputably lager beer, and behind him the bartender of the hotel, carrying nothing as far as one can see. But of course, if you know Mariposa, you will understand that why he looks so nonchalant and empty-handed is because he has two bottles of rye whiskey under his linen duster.' "'You know, I think, the peculiar walk of a man with two bottles of whisky in the inside pockets of a linen coat. In Mariposa, you see, to bring beer to an excursion is quite in keeping with public opinion. But whisky, well, one has to be a little careful. Do I say Mr. Smith is here? Why, everybody's here. There's Hassell, the editor of the news packet, wearing a blue ribbon on his coat for the Mariposa knights of Pythias are, by their constitution, dedicated to temperance. And there's Henry Mullins, the manager of the exchange bank, also a knight of Pythias, with a small flask of pogram special in his hip pocket, as a sort of amendment to the constitution. And there's Dean Drone, the chaplain of the order, with a fishing rod, you never saw such green bass as lie among the rocks at Indian's Island, and with a trolling line in case of Masquinonge and a landing net in case of Pickerel, and with his eldest daughter Lillian Drone in case of young men. There never was such a fisherman as the Reverend Rupert Drone. Perhaps I ought to explain that when I was speaking of the excursion as being of the Knights of Pythias the thing must not be understood in any narrow sense. In Mariposa practically everybody belongs to the Knights of Pythias just as they do to everything else. That's the great thing about the town, and that's what makes it so different from the city. Everybody is in everything. You should see them on the 17th of March, for instance, when everybody wears a green ribbon, and they're all laughing and glad. You know what the Celtic nature is, and talking about home rule. On St. Andrew's Day, every man in town wears a thistle, and shakes hands with everybody else, and you see the fine old Scotch honesty beaming out of their eyes. And on St. George's Day, well— There's no heartiness like the good old English spirit, after all. Why shouldn't a man feel glad that he's an Englishman? And then, on the Fourth of July, there are the stars and stripes flying over half the stores in town, and suddenly all the men are seen to smoke cigars and to know all about Roosevelt and Bryan and the Philippine Islands. Then you learn for the first time that Jeff Thorpe's people came from Massachusetts and that his uncle fought at Bunker Hill— Anyway, Jefferson will swear it was in Dakota all right enough. And you find that George Duff has a married sister in Rochester and that her husband is all right. In fact, George was down there as recently as eight years ago. Oh, it's the most American town imaginable is Mariposa, on the 4th of July. But wait, just wait. If you feel anxious about the solidity of the British connection till the 12th of the month when everybody is wearing an orange streamer in his coat, and the orangemen, every man in town, walk in the big procession. Allegiance! Well, perhaps you remember the address they gave to the Prince of Wales on the platform of the Mariposa station as he went through on his tour to the west. I think that pretty well settled that question. So you will easily understand, of course, everybody belongs to the Knights of Pythias, and the Masons, and Oddfellows, just as they all belong to the snowshoe club and the girls' friendly society. And meanwhile, the whistle of the steamer has blown again for a quarter of seven, loud and long this time, for anyone not here now is late for certain, unless he should happen to come down in the last fifteen minutes. What a crowd upon the wharf, and how they pile on to the steamer! It's a wonder that the boat can hold them all. But that's just the marvellous thing about the mariposa bell.' "'I don't know—I never have known—where the steamers like the Mariposa Bell come from. Whether they are built by Harlan and Wolfe of Belfast, or whether, on the other hand, they are not built by Harland and Wolfe of Belfast, is more than one would like to say offhand. The Mariposa Bell always seems to me to have some of those strange properties that distinguish Mariposa itself. I mean, her size seems to vary so. If you see her there in the winter—' "'Frozen in the ice beside the wharf, "'with a snowdrift against the windows of the pilot-house, "'she looks like a pathetic little thing "'the size of a butternut. "'But in the summertime, "'especially after you've been in Mariposa for a month or two "'and have paddled alongside of her in a canoe, "'she gets larger and taller "'and with a great sweep of black sides "'till you see no difference between the Mariposa Belle "'and the Lusitania. "'Each one is a big steamer, and that's all you can say. Nor do her measurements help you much. She draws about eighteen inches forward, and more than that, at least half an inch more astern. And when she's loaded down with an excursion crowd, she draws a good two inches more. And above the water, why, look at all the decks on her. There's the deck you walk on to, from the wharf, all shut in, with windows along it, and the after-cabin with the long table, and above that the deck with all the chairs piled up on it, and the deck in front where the band stand round in a circle, and the pilot house is higher than that, and above the pilot house is the board with the gold name and the flagpole and the steel ropes and the flags, and fixed in somewhere on the different levels is the lunch counter where they sell the sandwiches and the engine room, and down below the deck level beneath the water line is the place where the crew sleep. What with steps and stairs and passages and piles of cordwood for the engine? Oh, no, I guess Harlan and Wolfe didn't build her. They couldn't have. Yet even with a huge boat like the Mariposa Belle, it would be impossible for her to carry all of the crowd that you see in the boat and on the wharf. In reality, the crowd is made up of two classes, all of the people in Mariposa who are going on the excursion and all those who are not, Some come for the one reason, and some for the other. The two tellers of the exchange bank are both there standing side by side, but one of them, the one with the cameo pin and the long face like a horse, is going, and the other, with the other cameo pin and the face like another horse, is not. In the same way, Hassell of the news packet is going, but his brother beside him isn't. Lillian Drone is going, but her sister can't, and so on all through the crowd. And to think that things should look like that on the morning of a steamboat accident! How strange life is! To think of all these people so eager and anxious to catch the steamer, and some of them running to catch it, and so fearful that they might miss it, the morning of a steamboat accident! And the captain, blowing his whistle, and warning them so severely that he would leave them behind, leave them out of the accident, and everybody crowding so eagerly to be in the accident. Perhaps life is like that all through. Strangest of all to think, in a case like this, of the people who were left behind, or in some way or other prevented from going, and always afterwards told of how they had escaped being on board the Mariposa Bell that day. Some of the instances were certainly extraordinary. Nivens, the lawyer, escaped from being there merely by the fact that he was away in the city. Towers, the tailor, only escaped owing to the fact that, not intending to go on the excursion, he had stayed in bed till eight o'clock and so had not gone. He narrated afterwards that, waking up that morning at half-past five, he had thought of the excursion and, for some unaccountable reason, had felt glad that he was not going. The case of Yodel, the auctioneer, was even more inscrutable. He had been at the Odd Fellows excursion on the train the week before, and to the conservative picnic the week before that, and had decided not to go on this trip. In fact, he had not the least intention of going.' He narrated afterwards how the night before someone had stopped him on the corner of Nippewa and Tecumseh streets, he indicated the very spot, and asked, Are you going to take in the excursion tomorrow? And he had said, just as simply as he was talking when narrating it, No. And ten minutes after that, at the corner of DeLucie and Brock streets, he offered to lead a party of verification to the precise place, somebody else had stopped him and asked, Well, are you going on the steamer trip tomorrow? Again he had answered no, apparently almost in the same tone as before. He said afterwards that when he heard the rumor of the accident it seemed like the finger of providence and he fell on his knees in thankfulness. There was the similar case of Morrison, I mean the one in Glover's hardware store that married one of the Thompsons, He said afterwards that he had read so much in the papers about accidents lately, mining accidents and aeroplanes and gasoline, that he had grown nervous. The night before, his wife had asked him at supper, Are you going on the excursion? He had answered, No, I don't feel like it, and had added, Perhaps your mother might like to go. And the next evening, just at dusk, when the news ran through the town, he said the first thought that flashed through his head was, Mrs. Thompson's on that boat. He told this right as I say it, without the least doubt or confusion. He never for a moment imagined she was on the Lusitania or the Olympic or any other boat. He knew she was on this one. He said you could have knocked him down where he stood. But no one had, not even when he got halfway down on his knees. And it would have been easier still to knock him down or kick him. People do miss a lot of chances." Still, as I say, neither yodel nor morrison nor anyone thought about there being an accident until just after sundown when they well, have you ever heard the long booming whistle of a steamboat two miles out on the lake in the dusk, and while you listen and count and wonder? Seen the crimson rockets going up against the sky, and then heard the fire bell ringing right there beside you in the town, and seen the people running to the town wharf. That's what the people of Mariposa saw and felt that summer evening as they watched the Mackinaw lifeboat go plunging out into the lake with seven sweeps to a side and the foam clear to the gunwale with the lifting stroke of fourteen men. But dear me. "'I am afraid that this is no way to tell a story. "'I suppose the true art would have been "'to have said nothing about the accident till it happened. "'But when you write about Mariposa, or hear of it, "'if you know the place, it's all so vivid and real "'that a thing like the contrast "'between the excursion crowd in the morning "'and the scene at night leaps into your mind, "'and you must think of it. "'But never mind about the accident. "'Let us turn back to the morning.' The boat was due to leave at seven. There was no doubt about the hour, not only seven, but seven sharp. The notice in the news packet said, The boat will leave sharp at seven. And the advertising posters on the telegraph poles on Missinaba that began, Ho for Indians Island, ending up with the words, Boat leaves at seven sharp. There was a big notice on the wharf that said, Boat leaves sharp on time. So, at seven, right on the hour, the whistle blew loud and long, and then, at seven fifteen, three short peremptory blasts, and, at seven thirty, one quick angry call, just one. And very soon after that they cast off the last of the ropes, and the Mariposa Bell sailed off in her cloud of flags, and the band of the Knights of Pythias, timing it to a nicety, broke into the Maple Leaf Forever. "'I suppose that all excursions, when they start, are much the same. "'Anyway, on the Mariposa Bell, everyone went running up and down all over the boat "'with deck chairs and camp stools and baskets, and found places, splendid places to sit, "'and then got scared that there might be better ones, and chased off again. "'People hunted for places out of the sun, and when they got them, "'swore that they weren't going to freeze to please anybody.' and the people in the sun said that they hadn't paid fifty cents to be roasted. Others said that they hadn't paid fifty cents to get covered with cinders, and there were still others who hadn't paid fifty cents to get shaken to death with the propeller. Still, it was all right presently. The people seemed to get sorted out into the places on the boat where they belonged. The women, the older ones, all gravitated into the cabin on the lower deck, and by getting round the table with needlework, and with all the windows shut, they soon had it as they said themselves, just like being at home. And the young boys and the Tufts and the men in the band got down on the lower deck forward, where the boat was dirtiest, and where the anchor was and the coils of rope. and upstairs on the after deck, there were Lillian Drone and Miss Lawson, the high school teacher, with a book of German poetry, Goethe, I think it was, and the bank teller and the young men. In the centre, standing beside the rail, were Dean Drone and Dr. Gallagher looking through binocular glasses at the shore. Up in front on the little deck forward of the pilot-house was a group of the older men, Mullins and Duff and Mr. Smith in a deck-chair, and beside him Mr. Golgotha Gingham, the undertaker of Mariposa, on a stool. It was part of Mr. Gingham's principles to take in an outing of this sort, a business matter more or less, for you never know what may happen at these water-parties. At any rate, he was there in a neat suit of black, not, of course, his heavier or professional suit, but a soft, clinging effect, as of burnt paper that combined gaiety and decorum to a nicety. "'Yes,' said Mr. Gingham, waving his black glove in a general way toward the shore, "'I know the lake well, very well. I've been pretty much all over it in my time. Canoeing?' asked somebody. No, Mr. Gingham said, not in a canoe. There seemed a peculiar and quiet meaning in his tone. Sailing, I suppose, said someone else. No, said Mr. Gingham, I don't understand it. I never knowed that you went on to the water at all, Gall, said Mr. Smith, breaking in. Ah, not now, explained Mr. Gingham. It was years ago, the first summer I came to Mariposa. I was on the water practically all day— nothing like it to give a man an appetite and keep him in shape. "'Was you camping?' asked Mr. Smith. "'We camped at night,' assented the undertaker. "'But we put in practically the whole day on the water. You see, we were after a party that had come up from the city on his vacation and gone out in a sailing canoe. We were dragging. We were up every morning at sunrise, lit a fire on the beach, and cooked breakfast— and then we'd light our pipes and be off with the net for a whole day. It's a great life,' concluded Mr. Gingham wistfully. "'Did you get him?' asked two or three together. There was a pause before Mr. Gingham answered. "'We did,' he said, down in the reeds past Horseshoe Point. But it was no use. He turned blue on me right away.' After which Mr. Gingham fell into such a deep reverie that the boat had steamed another half-mile down the lake before anybody broke the silence again. Talk of this sort, and, after all, what more suitable for a day on the water, beguiled the way. Down the lake, mile after mile over the calm water, steamed the Mariposa Bell. They passed Poplar Point, where the high sandbanks are with all the swallows' nests in them, and Dean Drone and Dr. Gallagher looked at them alternately through the binocular glasses And it was wonderful how plainly one could see the swallows and the banks and the shrubs, just as plainly as with the naked eye. And a little further down they passed the Shingle Beach, and Dr. Gallagher, who knew Canadian history, said to Dean Drone that it was strange to think that Champlain had landed there with his French explorers three hundred years ago. And Dean Drone, who didn't know Canadian history, said it was stranger still to think that the hand of the Almighty had piled up the hills and rocks long before that, and Dr. Gallagher said it was wonderful how the French had found their way through such a pathless wilderness, and Dean Drone said that it was wonderful also to think that the Almighty had placed even the smallest shrub in its appointed place. Dr. Gallagher said it filled him with admiration, Dean Drone said it filled him with awe. Dr. Gallagher said he'd been full of it since he was a boy, and Dean Drone said so had he. Then, a little further, as the Mariposa Bell steamed on down the lake, they passed the old Indian portage where the great gray rocks are, and Dr. Gallagher drew Dean Drone's attention to the place where the narrow canoe track wound up from the shore to the woods, and Dean Drone said he could see it perfectly well without the glasses. Dr. Gallagher said that it was just here that a party of five hundred French had made their way with all their baggage and accoutrements across the rocks of the Divide and down to the Great Bay, and Dean Drone said that it reminded him of Xenophon leading his ten thousand Greeks over the hill passes of Armenia down to the sea." Dr. Gallagher said that he had often wished that he could have seen and spoken to Champlain, and Dean Drone said how much he regretted to have never known Xenophon. And then, after that, they fell to talking of relics and traces of the past, and Dr. Gallagher said that if Dean Drone would come round to his house some night, he would show him some Indian arrowheads that he had dug up in his garden, and Dean Drone said that if Dr. Gallagher would come round to the rectory any afternoon— he would show him a map of Xerxes' invasion of Greece, only he must come some time between the infant class and the mother's auxiliary. So presently they both knew that they were blocked out of one another's houses for some time to come, and Dr. Gallagher walked forward and told Mr. Smith, who had never studied Greek, about Champlain crossing the Rock Divide. Mr. Smith turned his head and looked at the divide for half a second and then said he had crossed a worse one up north, back of the Winnipiti, and that the flies were Hades, and then went on playing freeze-out poker with the two juniors in Duff's Bank. So Dr. Gallagher realized that that's always the way when you try to tell people things, and that, as far as gratitude and appreciation goes, one might as well never read books or travel anywhere or do anything." In fact, it was at this very moment that he made up his mind to give the arrows to the Mariposa Mechanics Institute. They afterwards became, as you know, the Gallagher Collection. But for the time being, the doctor was sick of them, and wandered off round the boat, and watched Henry Mullins showing George Duff how to make a John Collins without lemons, and finally went and sat down among the Mariposa band, and wished that he hadn't come. So the boat steamed on, and the sun rose higher and higher, and the freshness of the morning changed into the full glare of noon, and they went on to where the lake began to narrow in at its foot, just where the Indian's island is, all grass and trees, and with a log wharf running into the water. Below it the lower Osawipi runs out of the lake, and quite near are the rapids, and you can see down among the trees the red brick of the power-house, and hear the roar of the leaping water." The Indian's island itself is all covered with trees and tangled vines, and the water about it is so still that it's all reflected double and looks the same either way up. Then when the steamer's whistle blows as it comes into the wharf you hear it echo among the trees of the island and reverberate back from the shores of the lake. The scene is all so quiet and still and unbroken that Miss Cleghorn, the sallow girl in the telephone exchange, said she'd like to be buried there. But all the people were so busy getting their baskets and gathering up their things that no one had time to attend to it. I mustn't even try to describe the landing and the boat crunching against the wooden wharf and all the people running to the same side of the deck and Christy Johnson calling out to the crowd to keep to the starboard and nobody being able to find it. Everyone who has been on a Mariposa excursion knows all about that. "'Nor can I describe the day itself, and the picnic under the trees. "'There were speeches afterwards, and Judge Pepperly gave such offence "'by bringing in conservative politics that a man called Patriotus Canadiensis "'wrote and asked for some of the invaluable space of the Mariposa Times-Herald "'and exposed it. "'I should say that there were races, too, on the grass on the open side of the island, graded mostly according to ages,' Races for boys under 13 and girls over 19, and all that sort of thing. Sports are generally conducted on that plan in Mariposa. It is realized that a woman of 60 has an unfair advantage over a mere child. Dean Drone managed the races and decided the ages and gave out the prizes. The Wesleyan minister helped, and he and the young student who was relieving in the Presbyterian church held the string at the winning point. They had to get mostly clergymen for the races, because all the men had wandered off somehow to where they were drinking lager beer out of two kegs stuck in pine logs among the trees. But if you've ever been on a Mariposa excursion, you know all about these details anyway. So the day wore on, and presently the sun came through the trees on a slant, and the steamer whistle blew with a great puff of white steam, and all the people came straggling down to the wharf and pretty soon the mariposa bell had floated out onto the lake again and headed for the town, twenty miles away. I suppose you have often noticed the contrast there is between an excursion on its way out in the morning and what it looks like on the way home. In the morning everybody is so restless and animated and moves to and fro all over the boat and asks questions But coming home, as the afternoon gets later and later, and the sun sinks beyond the hills, all the people seem to get so still and quiet and drowsy. So it was with the people on the Mariposa Bell. They sat there on the benches and the deck chairs in little clusters, and listened to the regular beat of the propeller, and almost dozed off asleep as they sat. Then, when the sun set and the dusk drew on, it grew almost dark on the deck, and so still that you could hardly tell that there was anyone on board, and if you had looked at the steamer from the shore or from one of the islands, you'd have seen the row of lights from the cabin windows shining on the water, and the red glare of the burning hemlock from the funnel, and you'd have heard the soft thud of the propeller miles away over the lake. Now and then, too, you could have heard them singing on the steamer, the voices of the girls and the men blended into unison by the distance rising and falling in long-drawn melody, O Canada, O Canada. You may talk as you will about the intoning choirs of your European cathedrals, but the sound of O Canada borne across the waters of a silent lake at evening is good enough for those of us who know Mariposa. I think it was just as they were singing like this— O Canada, that word went around that the boat was sinking. If you have ever been in any sudden emergency on the water, you will understand the strange psychology of it, the way in which what is happening seems to become known all in a moment without a word being said. The news is transmitted from one to the other by some mysterious process. At any rate, on the Mariposa Bell, first one and then the other heard that the steamer was sinking. As far as I could ever learn, the first of it was that George Duff, the bank manager, came very quietly to Dr. Gallagher and asked him if he thought that the boat was sinking. The doctor said no, that he had thought so earlier in the day, but that he didn't now think that she was. After that, Duff, according to his own account, had said to McCartney the lawyer that the boat was sinking, and McCartney said that he doubted it very much. "'Then somebody came to Judge Pepperly, and woke him up, and said that there were six inches of water in the steamer, and that she was sinking. And Pepperly said it was perfect scandal, and passed the news on to his wife, and she said that they had no business to allow it, and that if the steamer sank, that was the last excursion she'd go on. "'So the news went all around the boat.' and everywhere the people gathered in groups and talked about it in an angry and excited way that people have when a steamer is sinking on one of the lakes like Lake Wissanotti. Dean Drone, of course, and some others were quieter about it, and said that one must make allowances, and that naturally there were two sides to everything. But most of them wouldn't listen to reason at all. I think perhaps that some of them were frightened. You see, the last time but one that the steamer had sunk, there had been a man drowned, and it made them nervous. What? Hadn't I explained about the depth of Lake Wassonati? I had taken it for granted that you knew, and in any case, parts of it are deep enough, though I don't suppose in this stretch of it, from the big reed beds up to within a half mile of the town wharf, you could find six feet of water in it if you tried. Oh, shaw! I was not talking about a steamer sinking in the ocean and carrying down its screaming crowds of people into the hideous depths of the green water. Oh, dear me, no. That kind of thing never happens on Lake Wissanotti. But what does happen is that the Mariposa Bell sinks every now and then, and sticks there on the bottom till things get straightened up. On the lakes around Mariposa, if a person arrives late anywhere and explains that the steamer sank, everybody understands the situation. You see, when Harland and Wolfe built the Mariposa Bell, they left some cracks in between the timbers that you fill up with cotton waste every Sunday. If this is not attended to, the boat sinks. In fact, it is part of the law of the province that all the steamers like the Mariposa Bell must be properly corked. I think that is the word, every season. There are inspectors who visit all the hotels in the province to see that it is done. So you can understand, now that I've explained it a little straighter, the indignation of the people when they knew that the boat had come uncorked and that they might be stuck out there on a shoal or a mud bank half the night. I don't say either that there wasn't any danger. Anyway, it doesn't feel very safe when you realize that the boat is settling down with every hundred yards that she goes, and you look over the side— and see only the black water in the gathering night. Safe? I'm not sure, now that I come to think of it, that it isn't worse than sinking in the Atlantic. After all, in the Atlantic there is wireless telegraphy, and a lot of trained sailors and stewards. But out on Lake Wissanotti, far out, so that you can only just see the lights of the town away off to the south, when the propeller comes to a stop and you can hear the hiss of steam as they start to rake out the engine fires to prevent an explosion, and when you turn from the red glare that comes from the furnace doors as they open them to the black dark that is gathering over the lake, and there's a night wind beginning to run among the rushes, and you see the men running forward to the roof of the pilot-house to send up the rockets to rouse the town, safe? Safe yourself, if you like. As for me, "'Let me once get back into Mariposa again "'under the night shadow of the maple trees, "'and this shall be the last, last time "'I'll go on Lake Wissanotti.' "'Safe! Oh, yes! "'Isn't it strange how other people's adventures "'seem after they happen? "'But you'd have been scared, too, "'if you'd been there just before the steamer sank "'and seen them bringing up all the women "'onto the top deck. "'I don't see how some of the people "'took it so calmly.' how Mr. Smith, for instance, could have gone on smoking, and telling how he'd had a steamer sink on him on Lake Nipissing, and a still bigger one, a side-wheeler, sink on him in Lake Abitibi. Then, quite suddenly, with a quiver, down she went. You could feel the boat sink, sink, down, down. Would it never get to the bottom? The water came flush to the lower deck, and then, thank heaven, the sinking stopped, and there was the mariposa bell, safe and tight, on a reed-bank. Really it made one positively laugh. It seemed so queer, and anyway, if a man has a sort of natural courage, danger makes him laugh. Danger? Pshaw, Fiddlesticks! Everybody scouted the idea. Why, it is just the little things, like this, that give zest to a day on the water.' "'Within half a minute they were all running round looking for sandwiches and cracking jokes "'and talking of making coffee over the remains of the engine fires. "'I don't need to tell at length how it all happened after that. "'I suppose the people on the Mariposa Bell would have had to settle down there all night "'or till help came from the town, but some of the men who had gone forward "'and were peering out into the dark said that it couldn't be more than a mile "'across the water to Miller's Point.' "'you could almost see it over there to the left. "'Some of them, I think, said, "'Off on the port bow, "'because you know when you get mixed up "'in these marine disasters, "'you soon catch the atmosphere of the thing.' "'So pretty soon they had the davits "'swung out over the side "'and were lowering the old lifeboat "'from the top deck into the water. "'There were men leaning out over the rail "'of the mariposa bell with lanterns "'that threw the light as they let her down. "'And the glare fell on the water and the reeds.' but when they got the boat lowered it looked such a frail clumsy thing as one saw it from the rail above that the cry was raised women and children first for what was the sense if it should turn out that the boat wouldn't even hold women and children of trying to jam a lot of heavy men into it so they put in mostly women and children and the boat pushed off into the darkness so freighted down it would hardly float. In the bow of it was the Presbyterian student who was relieving the minister, and he called out that they were in the hands of Providence, but he was crouched and ready to spring out of them at the first moment. So the boat went and was lost in the darkness, except for the lantern in the bow that you could see bobbing on the water. Then presently it came back, and they sent another load, till pretty soon the decks began to thin out, and everybody got impatient to be gone.' It was about the time that the third boatload put off that Mr. Smith took a bet with Mullins for twenty-five dollars that he'd be home in Mariposa before the people in the boats had walked round the shore. No one knew just what he meant, but pretty soon they saw Smith disappear down below into the lowest part of the steamer with a mallet in one hand and a big bundle of marlin in the other. They might have wondered more about it, But it was just at this time that they heard the shouts from the rescue boat, the big Mackinaw lifeboat that had put out from the town with fourteen men at the sweeps when they saw the first rockets go up. I suppose there is always something inspiring about a rescue at sea or on the water. After all, the bravery of the lifeboat man is the true bravery, expended to save life, not to destroy it. "'Certainly they told for months after "'of how the rescue boat came out to the Mariposa Bell. "'I suppose that when they put her in the water, "'the lifeboat touched it for the first time "'since the old MacDonald government placed her on Lake Wissanotti. "'Anyway, the water poured in at every seam. "'But not for a moment, even with two miles of water "'between them and the steamer, did the rowers pause for that.' By the time they were halfway there, the water was almost up to the thwarts, but they drove her on. Panting and exhausted, for mind you, if you haven't been in a fool boat like that for years, rowing takes it out of you, the rowers stuck to their task. They threw the ballast over and chucked into the water the heavy cork jackets and life belts that encumbered their movements. There was no thought of turning back. They were nearer to the steamer than the shore. "'Hang to it, boys!' Called the crowd from the steamer's deck, and hang they did. They were almost exhausted when they got them. Men leaning from the steamer threw them ropes, and one by one, every man was hauled aboard just as the lifeboat sank under their feet. Saved! By heaven, saved by one of the smartest pieces of rescue work ever seen on the lake. There's no use describing it. You need to see rescue work of this kind by lifeboats to understand it nor were the lifeboat crew the only ones that distinguished themselves. Boat after boat and canoe after canoe had put out from Mariposa to the help of the steamer. They got them all. Pupkin, the other bank teller with a face like a horse, who hadn't gone on the excursion, as soon as he knew that the boat was signaling for help and that Miss Lawson was sending up rockets, rushed for a rowboat, grabbed an oar, two would have hampered him, and paddled madly out into the lake. He struck right out into the dark, with the crazy skiff almost sinking beneath his feet. But they got him. They rescued him. They watched him, almost dead with exhaustion, make his way to the steamer, where he was hauled up with ropes. Saved. Saved. They might have gone on that way half the night— picking up the rescuers, only at the very moment when the tenth load of people left for the shore, just as suddenly and saucily as you please, up came the mariposa bell from the mud-bottom and floated. Floated? Why, of course she did. If you take a hundred and fifty people off a steamer that is sunk, and if you get a man as shrewd as Mr. Smith to plug the timber seams with mallet and marlin, "'and if you turn ten bandsmen of the mariposa band "'onto your hand-pump on the bow of the lower decks, "'float? Why, what else can she do? "'Then, if you stuff in hemlock "'into the embers of the fire that you were raking out "'till it hums and crackles under the boiler, "'it won't be long before you hear the propeller "'thud, thudding at the stern again, "'and before long the roar of the steam-whistle echoes over to the town.' And so the mariposa bell with all steam up again, and with the long trail of sparks careering from the funnel, is heading for the town. But no Christy Johnson at the wheel in the pilot-house this time. Smith, get Smith, is the cry. Can he take her in? Well now, ask a man who has had steamers sink on him in half the lakes from Tamascamming to the bay if he can take her in. "'Ask a man who has run a York boat "'down the rapids of the Moose "'when the ice is moving "'if he can grip the steering wheel "'of the Mariposa Bell.' "'So there she steams, "'safe and sound to the town wharf. "'Look at the lights and the crowd. "'If only the federal census-taker "'could count us now. "'Hear them calling and shouting "'back and forward from the deck to the shore. "'Listen. "'There is the rattle of the shore-ropes "'as they get them ready.' And there's the Mariposa Band, actually forming in a circle on the upper deck just as she docks, and the leader with his baton, one, two, ready now. Oh Canada. You've been listening to The Marine Excursion of the Knights of Pythias by Stephen Leacock from his book Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. I'm Richard Figgy, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. Let me know what stories you have discovered during this stay-at-home period and what authors you would like to hear. Write to me, if you will, at rfiggy that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, let's be very careful out there and watch out for each other. Remember, you're important. Be well, be happy, all the best. <music>